Well, as we continue to worship this morning, if you would, turn in your Bibles over to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And I know many of you are thinking, we didn't think this day would ever come, <laughs> right? Well, not only do we finish the chapter this morning, Lord willing, right? Uh, but we finish the book of 1 Corinthians. And so we, as we've been looking, the last message specifically, but uh, this one as well, but really the whole end of chapter 16, Paul has been wrapping it up, right? He's been trying to wrap it up. I think he's missed a few spots to really wrap it up and do well, right? But uh, we're going to trust the Holy Spirit, and, and what needed to be communicated is what is communicated. So as he goes into 16, we see him talking about giving, right? The collection, and he goes from there into uh, the management of our time and seizing opportunities. And from there, he goes into, hey, don't abuse Timothy, right? Protect him. Look out for him. I've encouraged Apollos to come, but he's not willing now, but he's going to come. And then as we, we go into verse 13 and 14, another good opportunity for Paul to just kind of put an amen at the end of it, right? 13, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong, let all that you do be done with love. It just sounds like it would be amen, right? The Holy Spirit is not done yet. So he goes from that and, and he uses Stephanus as an example all in his household, right? It shows us uh, the activity of the church, right? How we are to center our lives on the gospel, how to, we're to cooperate and to minister. And he really has this, this element of family that kind of really begins to kind of have a heartbeat that's Behind this, he uses Stephanus. I say he uses that sounds wrong, but he, he places Stephanus as an example. Uh, Paul needs boots on the ground there, right, to minister and to, to be at work and all the things that he has challenged them on and corrected them on. But as he comes to these last verses, 19 through 24, we'll read here in a moment, uh, we really see the activity of the church working amongst themselves, and it's really the, the heartbeat of a family. Um, you know, often the scripture speaks of us as brothers and sisters. It, uh, in the Old Testament, I, I believe it's Psalm 95, David uses that language of the shepherd and we are the sheep of his pasture. Uh, Paul uses language in Ephesians 5 as husbands and wives, the church and the bride, right? We see this, this connecting uh, of, of family, right? This, this closeness. And he's going to have elements of this. And it may seem a little bit foreign to us because... You know, as he's, he's, in my mind, he's missed opportunities, right, to wrap this up. But he is going to weave in uh, the word anathema, right, in the closing. Or in our translation, at least mine translates it accursed. It seems like Paul might be going the wrong direction here, right? He comes and he's wrapping this up. He's talking about a family. And then he uses a real strong word here. But as you think about a family, if you've grew up with, uh, with a family, if you had parents, some of us did, some of us didn't, but if you've had siblings, uh, some of this begins, you begin to understand kind of like a little bit of, of, the, of the emotional content of being connected to a sibling, at times loving that sibling, at other times wanting to really harm that sibling. Some of us are nodding our heads. <laughs> Uh, sometimes we want to greet them, and it's so good to see you, and the next time it's like, okay, that was, I'm going to get you back, buddy, right? I have two older brothers and an older sister. I understand the activities of siblings. I always like to say I've got good stories on them, right? 
And of course, they remind me, yeah, we've got good stories on you too. But Paul has this element as he comes to wrap this up of a family, right? We're working together. He is writing to Christians. He's not writing about evangelism. He's not writing about outreach or any of those things. He's closing this letter to this, this church. And he comes and he has these last few things to say to them. And he, he really, to me, puts it in the context of, of working together. He uses words such as greet one another. He uses the holy kiss, right? Affectionate, close. And then he turns around and says, you know what? If, you're, if you don't love Christ, you're accursed. That sounds like something a sibling might say. I don't know. But, but he has hard language and he turns around and he uses the words grace and love. As I was looking at this passage, I came across this, um, this lady. Her name was Karen Donovan. And uh, sometime back in, in Pataluma, California, she had started a company called Rent-A-Wife. And her thought was, you know, that, that there are those out there who just need help decorating their homes or balancing their checkbooks or running errands, right? She probably created a list of things moms maybe naturally do. And within four months of her developing this business, she had more brainstorms. She talked to her father and said, hey, what do you think about becoming rent-a-husband? She then later talked to her two teens and said, what do you guys think about starting a company called Rent-a-Family? And here is her reasoning. She says, we can do what other families do, right? As she kind of said jokingly. We can come over and eat all your food, turn on all the lights, put our handprints wherever you'd like on every wall. We can take showers and leave the towels on the floor. And when the clients are done with Rent-A-Family, they're going to want to call Rent-A-Wife. <laughs> well, there's elements of that that we kind of, we go, I get it, right? There's a family. And Paul is coming to this church, and he's, he's uh, greeting them. He genuinely loves them, and yet there's hard things. There's some things that have to be said. So this is what he says. So the churches, beginning in verse 19, the churches in Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The salutation with my own hand, Paul's. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. O Lord, come. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Let me offer a brief prayer. Father, now as we look at your word, we ask your spirit be with us and teaching us, leading us, opening our eyes, giving us understanding. And we do want to commit, Lord, our lives to you, this time to you as always, and uh, Lord, that I would be out of the way and that every life here would be fixed upon you, receiving what you have for us today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I mentioned earlier and last week, as we looked at verses 15 through 18, we saw the this, you know, the activity of a church, if you will, right? We saw the church being centered on the gospel. Uh, that sounds so commonplace, but you can't call yourself Christian if you don't actually know Christ, right? They have a gospel response. They have gospel action. We saw this in Stephanus and all his household. 
And as Paul speaks of them and their activity and ministering to the saints, I just use words like uh, the Christian community, which is us, right? Those in other churches who are believing on Jesus Christ for salvation are to be characterized by cooperation, right? And corroboration. They're taking resources and meeting uh, the needs of Paul, and he is refreshed, and they are refreshed. They're excited about uh, gospel activity, right? And, and Paul ends verses 18 and, uh, with the idea of appreciation, acknowledge, right? Acknowledge those uh, men such as this, those who are ministering. It's good for us. And Paul knows that as we do those things, right, hopefully we take on those characteristics, right? Well, as we look at these verses, the verses we just read, 19 through 24, he has this kind of inward, a little bit more of an inward focus. Begins to look at it. These are the last words he's going to pen in this letter to them uh, before the second letter goes out to them. But here he's, he's concluding it. And he, what I kind of put in the first point here is just simply the idea of a family, right? The Christian community is to enjoy unity in the gospel as a family. He says in verses 19 and 20, the churches of Asia, they greet you. Aquila and Priscilla, some of you might have Prisca in your, in your translations. That's the more formal name if you have that. It just, it's the same person. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord uh, with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. And then he tells them, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, for us today, we look at that holy kiss as Americans, and we think, whoa, 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 I don't know about you, but that's not what we do. Well, here, Paul is, is clearly uh, talking about a genuine affection for the church, right? In their culture at those times, you know, men would greet one another and kiss another man on the cheek. It was another, didn't go men to women and women to men, but women to women and men to men was a greeting, right? And it's in line with, with the churches that meet in homes, this, this closeness, Right, the importance of being together, and, you, and this really kind of shows how close these churches are. Right, I mean, how did they manage Paul communicating that all the churches in Asia greet you, all the brethren greet you, Aquila uh, and Priscilla they greet you, this married couple they greet you, and the church in their home. And Paul did this all without email. Right, he did it all without social media. That's pretty impressive. I don't know about you, but it's like, wow, man, that's 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 some effort there, right? But it shows the closeness of really the church, the family, right? Even though these are different communities, different churches, Paul is saying, uh, Corinthians, you're part of something larger than yourself, right? He begins by saying there was or is the greeting from all the churches in Asia, right? The first part of verse 19. Uh, the Corinthians, he began his letter by telling them the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 2, he said, to the church of God, which is in Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who are in every place, call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. Right now, it's important to note that he doesn't say this is the church at Corinth, right? But it's the church of God at Corinth. It's not just one church, it's one church of many, right? He set that tone from the very beginning. And here he's coming back and saying, look, all these other churches you're connected to, not because of email or Facebook, right, or Instagram, but because of the Lord Jesus Christ. He began his letter by saying, these are those who call on the name of Jesus Christ. We're sanctified. They are saints, right? And so at the end of his letter, he is saying, all these churches, they greet you. 
there's a bigger picture here, right, for us today to realize that we're not independent of the larger community, the universal church, we would say. There's a big globe out there, right? And we're not alone. That's good news. All right, we're not superior, we're not better, we're not super spiritual or anything like that. We're followers of Jesus Christ. And he's telling the Corinthians the very same thing. It kind of shows us again, right, just how close they are, how that culture functioned. When you came over, right, it was like, hey, let's, we're going to have a barbecue. We're going to take time. We'll talk later. Let's spend the first four or five hours just fellowshipping. In America, we're like, I've got a schedule. Right? If we're not eating here in five minutes, I'm going to go. Right? I know where a microwave's at or fast food, right? Or whatever it might be. But it shows all the churches greet you. He goes on from there and he, he tells us of Aquila and Priscilla. They greet you. Here we have some church planners, right? Planted a church in their home, right? And those in that church, right, who, who they are ministering to. You know, what's interesting here is that some scholars believe Aquila and Priscilla are Roman. They have a Roman descent, which means they most likely, some think, they might have been slaves or freed slaves. And again, it's, it's interesting. I think it's good for us to simply point this out. The gospel shows no discrimination, does it? It doesn't matter where you're at in life. It doesn't matter the train wreck of your past. It matters on what Christ can do and Christ can redeem, can he? We see this in Stephanus, a member of Fortunatus and Achaicus, right? Those are good words. Achaicus just means he's from Achaia, right? Which is, made that joke last week, which I thought was really funny, right? If you're having, if you're planning on having some kids and you had, and they're born in Merced, Merceticus, I don't know, has a ring to it, right? From Merced, okay. But they most likely were slaves, and yet what are they doing? They're ministering to the saints. We see this in Priscilla and Aquila and the church that's in their home. See, there's, there's always a gospel direction. There's always, right, theology leads to doxology. It leads to praise. It leads to application. When we understand what Calvary has done, we understand the holiness of God. When we understand what he's done in us, we want to tell others. There's a direction in our lives, and, and clearly all the churches are having this heartbeat. They greet you. They love you. We would never desire, or never say desire, we'd never dare, right, to trample the blood of Christ but how often do we treat those who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ in a poor way? I hear you see, and it doesn't mean they're perfect or they're innocent of, of those things, of offense or anything like that, but simply we see the genuineness. Christ has so moved. He has so redeemed. He is so loved. I am going to be an extension of that. Paul goes on from there, and he simply says, all the brothers, right? They greet you. All the brethren greet you. Now here, this is really a catch-all phrase. He's talking of men, women, children, right? All those. This is, this is Greek here, right? I should have, the brethren, right? Uh, it's Oklahoma, you would say all y'all, right? That is the, the translation. All y'all greet you. They all greet you, right? Here's a catchphrase. All of them are doing this. They're all on the same uh, level, if you will. And so Paul's conclusion, this first point of functioning like a family, is to say, hey, why don't you do the same thing? They're greeting you, so he turns around and says, greet one another. Greet those in the context of your community, those in your fellowship, those that you know, and with a holy kiss. I think it's, it's very interesting Paul would say this. I mean, everything we've covered in this letter, you know, going back to chapter 1 with the divisions, right? We have the, 
the Peter group and the Paul group and the Paulus group and right the holier and thou group we're part of the Jesus group and and you have those who are puffed up of chapter four and and those who are ignorant I mean Paul has worked through this and yet he's concluding and saying greet one another this way I don't know about you but if if you have a sibling or you've had a relationship with any person that you've been frustrated with Right? It's kind of difficult to go and embrace them, affectionately love them when you're mad at them. Right? Unless you're like my brothers, he'd be like, you know, come here, let me hug you while he's punching you. Right? It was kind of how he treated me. And I'm sure I deserved it, though. I won't say I'm innocent, but Paul has this conclusion of everything he has told them, all the things that they need to work on. He's saying, look, you need to have affection. The, the church is to be a family. There's times where we get frustrated with our brothers and sisters, don't we? There's times where we may do something and we may be offended. Paul is simply saying at the end of the day, what needs to trump your offense is the gospel. You need to realize that your brother and sister are redeemed by the blood of Christ. Let that offense go or work to a place right, in Matthew 18, where we can talk about sin, or Matthew 5, and come to this place where we can say, hey, we need to clear the air. Peter, just so you know, it's not unique to Paul. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 14, greet one another with a kiss of love, right? Have genuine love for each other. This is often, I think, a struggle for Americans, right, because we're individualistic, well, I saw so-and-so at church today. I'm a little bit frustrated with them. I'm just going to keep my distance and leave, right? And we'll go. Hopefully none of you have said that, but we're human, right? We struggle with this sin. It takes an element of, of humility to say, hey, I'm going to go and say, you know what? I need to work on this. Will you forgive me? It's much easier to say you love someone than to go to someone and say, would you please forgive me? Right? And you see this in Scripture, even in the context of church discipline, where, where Jesus maps this out for us. Right? Church discipline, remember, always starts with you and the Word of God. Right? So the Word of God disciplines us, and then we have a brother or a sister who confronts us, and then a couple, and as it goes on. But out of that context, Peter is he's posing the question that maybe some of us are thinking today, where he says, uh, Lord, this is Matthew 18, 21 and 22, Lord, uh, how often... Should I forgive uh, my brother his sin against me, right? How should I, how often should I do this? Up to seven times? I mean, Peter probably thought, that's a lot, right? If you go past, that's a summer, you know, it's the number of completion or whatever, and that's, you know, come on. There's a line, and, you know, apparently Peter imagines to some extent a little, a little checkbook of sorts. Well, there's that sin, you offended me? Okay, that's one, right? Um, that's two. You know, that one's so bad, we're gonna count that as three and four, right? Jesus puts all that to rest in his response. Jesus said to him, I do, not say, uh, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, I would imagine for a moment, maybe Peter was trying to do the math in his head. <laughs> but Jesus' point is simply, we don't keep track. See, when, when we come and we, we realize that we have been forgiven so much, this is why the gospel must be in front of us. And your brother comes or your sister comes to you and says, hey, I've, I've, I'm sorry. Right? We need to be forgiving. Jerry Bridges says in his book, The Disciplines of Grace, tells us, preach the gospel to yourself every day. Every day. 
See, the Christian community is going to function as a family, right? As brothers and sisters in Christ, knowing that we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ. And there's times where my brother and sister, I know if you have siblings and you know others who have done things where you're like, you know what? I, you know, there's a line, that's it. And that brother comes or that sister comes back to you and, and, and says, Man, I'm sorry, well, then there needs to be forgiveness. That's how a family functions. Paul comes to this community as he's wrapping up this letter, rather, as he's, he's concluding this, he's simply telling them, you're to function as a family, the Christian family. They greet one another. They love one another. They forgive each other, right? So even though Paul is, is not telling us to forgive, but he is saying to greet, to love, to genuinely do this. And we know for that to happen, there must be an element of forgiveness. We must keep the gospel in front of ourselves, preach it to ourselves every day. So in those verses, the opening verses, we see the, um, the activity, right? The functioning around gospel unity. We never compromise the gospel. We are to come into unity under the gospel and function as a family. And my second point is simply this. In verse 21, the Christian community uh, is to be unified in authentic and truthful gospel communication. And this is where Paul says, I believe for us, an interesting word. He says, the salutation with my own hand, Paul's. Most likely, Paul is, is uh, re- dictating this letter. Another is writing it, and here he switches, and he probably writes this in the remaining out of this letter in his own hand. He says, Paul's, and he says in verse 22, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Or the word anathema might be used in your translation. And then he turns around and says, Maranatha, O Lord, Come. So even in these moments is all the ground that Paul has covered. He comes to this moment and says, if you don't love Jesus. See some humility in Paul, maybe a little bit, but he's clearly not concerned whether they obey Paul. He's more concerned that they follow Christ, that they love Christ. To those who are redeemed, right, there's a, a wonderful a word we call grace, and we attach that wonderful adjective in front of it, and we call it amazing grace, and we understand the train wreck of my past and how God has, has redeemed me, how he has saved me, how he has loved me. And Paul knows that if we love Christ, if we're redeemed, we're going to have a love. That's going to be in you. There is his heartbeat. He knows that those who have been loved, who have received love, they love much. We may struggle at times with that, but he knows that in those who are professing Christ and yet do not have this love, he is telling them, you are accursed. He's pronouncing anathema, a person who is cursed. Remember, Paul is writing to Believers, He's not talking about evangelism and saying those who don't know Christ are unsaved. He's writing to the church body and he's saying, look, if you don't have a love for Jesus, and it takes our minds, and if it takes your mind, it takes me right to Revelation chapter 2 when Paul, or when Jesus rather tells the church uh, in Revelation 2, the church of Ephesus, you have forgotten your first love, which is who Christ, the activity of the gospel how, how this holy God has redeemed sinners. It was Jesus. We can do a lot of good things and we can go about our, our daily life and call ourselves Christian, but if there's not a genuine love for Christ resonating in us, growing out of us, 
exuding from us. Paul would say, you are accursed. I may seem a little bit harsh, but it's been his tone throughout other letters. Galatians 1, chapter 8, but even if we or an angel from heaven preach uh, another gospel to you than what we preach to you, let him be accursed. Isn't it amazing? We see the contrast. If there's no love of Christ, you are, right? The other side of this. You are a curse. There's not a love for the Lord, right? Human wisdom, our reasoning, our own way doesn't make us right. We are to love the Lord. It's rooted in the gospel of knowing Christ. And why does Paul use such harsh language here? Well, failure to obey Jesus, right, is a lack of love for Jesus. A failure to follow after him and and teach his word and to love his word and to follow uh, what it says in the commands of Scripture, right, is not to love. He equates that as to say to not to love the Lord. Jesus himself said, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad, Matthew twelve thirty. I believe this is this moment where uh, today in the modern Christianity, right, in the modern church, we've kind of gotten to this place where we can reorient ourselves, we may say that we're preaching the gospel, but the gospel, in fact, is, is not some type of psychology or pop psychology, right? And to not preach the gospel is a failure to love Jesus. I mean, think about that for a moment. If we don't treat or teach and preach his word, we are failing to actually love Christ, the Savior who has saved us. People may think today that, right, you, the gospel is having your purpose in life or being uh, in a right relationship with Christ or you know, finding the meaning of life. Now, those things are found in Scripture, but they're not the gospel. I think this is very vital for the church today because how we view sin really shines a light in what we think of Calvary. See, what we have to understand about the gospel is that God is a holy God. He is a triune holy God. It is the one attribute that is listed three times. We don't see that of any other attribute throughout Scripture. God is not omnipresent, 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 right? He's not omniscient, omniscient, omniscient. He's not love, love, love. No, he is holy, holy, holy. And there is no sin which will be in his presence. He is a just God. And God, by his holiness and his justice, must punish sin, otherwise he ceases to be a holy God. This is why there's no gray area. This is why Jesus said in his Passion Week, there is the faithful servant and the wicked servant. There's no gray area. Paul is saying the same thing. You're either, you're, if there's a love for Christ growing out of you, right? You know Christ. If there's not, you are accursed. Why is he saying that? Because Jesus became accursed for us. And if you're not in Christ, guess what? The weight of the justification of all that wrath is still on you. You have to bear it. God is just. He is holy. The good news is simply this. God so loved the world, he sends his son. And his son takes, right? He lives the perfect life. He goes in perfect obedience to the cross. And he, on that cross, takes our sin and our shame. He becomes that curse. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. 
So think for a moment what Paul is saying is even though you profess yourself to be a Christian, if there is not a genuine love for Christ growing out of you, a genuine, authentic, truthful love for Jesus, you might want to come back to the Calvary and think, do I really believe on Christ? He was perfect in obedience. He was the perfect sacrifice. Because God is holy, man is sinful. Sin must be punished. God sends his son. See, at the end of our lives, you and I, every soul that is on this planet will stand before a living and holy God and give an account for their lives. And we will stand on that day saying, you know what, I'm good enough. Or on that day, we will say, Christ has done it for me. This is why Paul uses this language. This is why I think in the context of a family, we know families, we know each other, we love our siblings, right? We love those in the church, those in Christ. But it needs to be something that is honest and truthful and say, look, if you don't have a genuine love for Jesus, there's not sanctification, the outworking, if there's not a, uh, something that motivates you, the, des- the, the desire and love to come and worship, then you might want to, to take a moment and say, do I really believe him? Can there be in, in the church those professing Christ and yet not be saved? Yes. Yes, there can be. Paul follows this anathema, right? It's an Aramaic word or, uh, with the Greek word maranatha. And he has this idea of even so, Lord Jesus, come. Right? He has this There's the harshness, and yet Christ, come. Would you come? See, I think what's what's happening in the church today, and and the reason I know I've said these many times, and anytime we talk about the gospel, I'm just going to go through it again. You need to know this. You need to be confident of this. Because I believe what is happening in the church in America is what Tom Askell calls a theoretical inerrancy. I thought that's really interesting, right? We can say all day long that we believe the word of God to be inerrant and sufficient and and a pastor can get in the pulpit and say, I believe the word of God to be inerrant and sufficient and everyone who's listening to that pastor can get diffused a little bit and say, oh, that's good. I know whatever he's going to say, it's from the word of God. But really that sufficiency or that understanding of the sufficiency and, and inerrancy of scripture is really theoretical. Right? We, we say those words, but we really don't mean it. We think of what's happening in, in American Christianity when songs, when Beyonce songs and Van Halen songs can pass for, for times of worship. When people can dance to, in stormtroopers and dance and do all these decorating things, it's almost as if, yeah, you, you know, there, there's the gospel, but with that comes a pair of skinny jeans and, and some hair gel to spike your hair, because that's what it means to be a pastor today. You've got to be hip and cool. You've got to do these things. It doesn't mean you have to be a stick in the mud, right? But clearly, if we are going to love Christ and not be accursed, we're going to teach what he told us. In his word. He is the central figure of all of scripture. On the road to Emmaus, when he's talking, he reveals himself. He sits down and tells all the scripture with his disciples how it pertained to him. And yet what we see in American Christianity is a reworking. We like to say that word. It's sufficient and inerrant. Yes, that's really good, but do we really teach it? 
Are we really authentic with it? Are we really truthful with the gospel? Are we willing to hear it? Back in 1958, J.I. Packer wrote Fundamentalism and the Word of God. And he wrote this to contend with those who are questioning the authority of Scripture, those who were arguing with the fundamentalists. And he says this, back in 1958. He says, If the human mind is set up as the measure and test of truth, which is the whole point of this, right? He says, It will quickly substitute for man's incomprehensible creator, capital C, a comprehensible idol fashioned in man's own image. Man wants a God, little g, he can manage and feel comfortable with and will inevitably invent one if allowed. He will forget because he cannot understand the infinite gulf that separates the Creator, capital C, from his creatures and will picture to himself a God, little g there, wholly involved in this world and wholly comprehensible in principle at any rate by the speculative intellect. We are recreating who God is. It was no accident, he says, but a natural development that made the liberal theology of the 19th century so strongly pantheistic. In his last sentence, he says, once people reverse the proper relationship between Scripture and their own thinking and start judging biblical statements about God by their private ideas about God instead of vice versa. Their knowledge of the Creator is in imminent danger of perishing and with it the whole idea of supernatural religion. So it has to happen in in the church as a family. We have to be truthful and honest. We cannot simply say that God's word is sufficient and inerrant. We actually have to follow it. If Jesus is going to be Lord of our lives and Lord of the church, then whatever he says is what we must be doing. This is what the church is to do. It doesn't mean we have to be a stick in the mud. It doesn't mean that we can't have humor and and enjoy each other and love each other. But it does mean that we must come, open his word, and teach his word. And when his word says this is sin, we must call it sin. When his word says we must repent of this, we need to repent of this. And when his word says this is the gospel, God is holy. And we are sin. We have sin. We're born into sin. And it's only Christ that saves we must know him. And today, if we do not know who Jesus Christ is, then that full weight of God's wrath, that curse of the law, is still on you. This is why Paul says, if there is not a growing love in you, you still have to pay that price. To which we know none of us can. None of us will stand before a holy God. As Paul says in this gospel community, right, this Christian community, to enjoy the gospel together as a family, we're to be authentic with each other and truthful with the gospel. Paul is using strong language here, right? Even so, Lord Jesus, come, but if it's not a love, we are accursed. And then my last points here 
uh, verses, the last two verses, 23 and 24, the Christian community is to enjoy Christ as our living hope. He says the grace. I mean, here is Paul's own writing, his own hand, right? And he says, if any no one loves the Lord, be accursed. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. And then he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. We finally get the amen, right? I'll say this is a good place to put the amen. We see Paul's desire, his love for this congregation, his love for the church, his love for Christ. His desire that we, just as they would, right, enjoy God's grace, right, enjoy his love, enjoy what it means to be redeemed, right, have that joy down deep inside of us, understand the Lord's activity. He says, here's the grace. We don't deserve it. It's undeserved. It's this wonderful activity of redemption. Not because we were righteous or we were good, because God is righteous and he is good. And despite us, he redeems us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Paul also understands that just as this grace is necessary, right, leads us to Calvary, he knows that in your daily life, we need to be having what? Grace, right? Our grace in, in walking with the Lord, our grace for each other, our grace and our encouragement, right? We need to be ongoing with God's grace. We need to be faithful in God's grace, right? We need to show merciful love to each other because of God's grace. We need to be saturated in his grace. And Paul is simply reminding them, right? He's given us the instruction of communion he has said, this is the grace, this is the covenant, this is the love that doesn't, uh, God doesn't give in on or give up on or break. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty five, when Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink in remembrance of me. We are in Christ Jesus. So a few chapters back, he explained to us everything, what it means to be in Adam and now in Christ you know, you are redeemed, you are saved. And Paul is saying it doesn't matter the train wreck of your life. It doesn't matter if you say, you know what, it was just one train that was a mess. Or you say there's a couple of trains. Or you say my whole past is a train yard full of train wrecks. God makes beautiful things out of ash. And he redeems, right, repentant sinners. There is a joy to understanding in the gospel. There's a joy that says, well, I know Christ. I know in whom I have believed. I know at the end of my life, I have Jesus. I know that this is but for a time, but I have his love, his grace always. There'll never be a time where I'll cease to have it. I'll have it more in full and glory, but even today and carrying forward, I will, I will always have it because this is who he is. As long as God exists, the eternal God who says, I change not. And if God is love and he loves the son, he will always love those whom he redeemed. And I am one of them. And if you know Christ, you are one of them too. We're to enjoy this. Paul has a heart for Christ, a heart for the church. He cares for the Corinthians. He's praying for the Corinthians. He longs to see the Corinthians. And he's pointing them to this wonderful truth of a living hope, which is in Christ. You know, some of us this morning may have this moment of thinking about, you know, it's my train wreck is not just one train yard, it's multiple train yards. You know, it's interesting, and I've said this before, in my devotion time, I've just been hanging out at the moment of the Passion Week, and, 
and the moment of Christ on the cross and his response on the cross and what is happening. I've been meditating upon just watching what those are doing and what Christ, how Christ is responding. You know, last week I mentioned Joseph of Arimathea. He gets the body of Jesus, takes him to the newly uh, hewn out tomb and places the body there, rolls the stone. And, and Matthew tells us that Mary, Magdalene and the other Mary, they were there. And then on the day of resurrection, right, it's the, the ladies, it's the women who are back at the tomb. The men are scattered, the disciples are scattered. Everyone has abandoned him, right? They're all gone. But what's interesting for Matthew is the words that he records. He, Jesus comes out of the tomb, right, and he tells the women, don't be afraid. And his next words are, go tell my brethren. See, often in life, we'll have these moments and we'll, we'll go through issues or problems and we'll, we'll have things that need to be repented of and we'll just, we'll repent of them and then we'll say, you know what, there's no way this awesome God full of love will love me. I think we have to come back and think on these words, go tell my brethren. See, the Lord isn't playing games at Calvary. Wasn't like a moment where he said, you know what, today I love him, but tomorrow, I don't know, we'll see how tomorrow plays out. No, he dealt squarely with our sin problem. Christ was not fearful of going to the cross. He was fearful of taking on all that sin. And the empty tomb was not for Jesus. We know he had no sin. He who knew no sin, he was sinless. And we know he was the tomb's not going to hold him. But the empty tomb is for you and me to realize that he has paid the price. It is acceptable to God. We can be redeemed. And even though our lives may be one of scattered, one of giving up, one of failing and saying, you know what, I blew it again. We don't ever want to abuse grace. But guess what? There is amazing grace for us. Jesus is simply saying, go tell my brethren, if you're in Christ, you are in Christ. This is who he is and what he has done. I love this quote from J.C. Ryle who says, our Savior is one who never forgets his people. He pities their infirmities. He does not despise them. He knows their weaknesses and yet does not cast them away. Our great high priest is also our elder brother. Go get the brethren. Go get my brothers and sisters. Go tell them. Go tell them what I have done. We have to keep the gospel in front of us. We have to preach it to us every day. You know, earlier this week is, at my lunchtime, I'll occasionally, this is a confession time, I'll occasionally peruse Facebook. And for some odd reason, there was these moments in golf. I don't know if, if there's some tour going on, but there was, I found myself watching these moments of golf, right? These great shots of U.S. Open and such. And it made me think of Payne Stewart, who was a golfer back in 1999 who won the U.S. Open, and not long after he had, uh, was killed in a plane crash. And I remember, you know, he was, if you're into golf back then, he was very animated, and he, he wore the, the, I don't know what's it called, knickers and the hats with the beanie. I mean, he was Scottish, I guess, and he, 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 he did it up, right? And uh, 
I remember watching as, I remember just, I don't know why I thought of this, I just remember watching that moment. So I was back then, I would play golf and I'd watch this and, and I thought how tragic it was. Uh, him winning the U.S. Open, I don't remember how long it was. It was later that year. I think he's in a Learjet and him and, and four others. Uh, the cabin pressure had lost pressure and they had passed out and the, the plane was up, I believe, I don't know, 50 some odd thousand feet and basically froze to death and they didn't know it and, and it crashed. It was really, it was really tragic. But as I was thinking about this, you know, what, what's really sad about his story, even though all of those five or six that were in there, is when that airliner or that Learjet was off course, there was a military jet. They didn't know what was going on. It would go up and fly, it flew next to it. And it was recorded that the pilot and the other, other jets who was watching, and he saw the, 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 the windows all frosted up. They kind of knew but he, he made this point of feeling so helpless. You know, I'm 100 to, you know, 50 to 100 feet away, and there's nothing you can do. Just simply watch this plane run out of fuel and crash into the earth. You know, for us, you know, you think about life and the brevity of life and eternity. And the gospel is the only thing that keeps us from plunging into eternity in hell. The work of Calvary in Christ, it is our only hope. And yet he's not a savior who, who played games or he went to the cross. He fulfilled the will of the Father. He rose again. And we can have this love and as a church we are to function in a Christian community to enjoy the gospel. Enjoy it as a family. Have affection for one another. To realize at the end of our lives I will not plunge into eternity into hell. But I will receive an embrace from my Savior. See, it's imperative upon us to use such language as Scripture. Maybe we should say, hey, if you don't, if you don't love Christ, guess what? The whole curse of, of the wrath of God is still on you. Paul seems to have this moment to shake these family members, saying he knows they're professing Christians that maybe are not Christians. And be truthful with one another. Love each other. We realize as a family, right, we get to enjoy Christ, not just today. Not knowing simply that even though we walk through difficult things, we know a sovereign God who's shaping us to the image of his Son, we know that one day will come and I will spend an eternity with him. I'm a part of his family. I don't have to rent a family. I don't have to rent a life, a wife or a, or a husband. No, I'm a part of his family. And I may have moments in my life where I think, they're like, Lord, how is it possible you love me? I have to simply come to Calvary see what took place and hear the words of our Savior say go get my brethren let us have this heartbeat let us have a love for Christ let us have a love for the church let it be growing in us Paul uses wonderful words greet one another love one another have grace have love and we're in Christ understand and enjoy those to the full let's pray father we do thank you very much for the truth of your word 
We thank you, Lord, that you change not. There's never a moment where you cease to be who your word says you are. I thank you so much for that. I thank you, Lord, that today we can trust you regardless of what we might be feeling in our past, in our life. Things we've gone through, things we've experienced, things that we're ashamed of. But when we know, Lord, when we, when we know that we are in Christ and we have your amazing grace, we ex- experience Lord, your love, we know that we have it eternally. So, Father, I pray for us this morning that this word would, would resonate in us, that we would keep the gospel in front of us, that we would greet one another, Lord, in, a, in a, an affectionate way, genuinely loving each other, not in word, but to really love and care for one another, calling on each other, reaching out to one another, to be a church, to be a family. I pray, Lord, that we would be those who uh, can speak truthfully about the gospel, not just say it's inerrant, your word's inerrant and perfect, but yet to, to believe it, to teach it that way, to live it that way. Lord, let us also have ears that when our brothers and sisters come to us and and seek forgiveness, or we go to them and ask for forgiveness, Lord, let us have that that gospel attitude that desires that relationships be restored, that we would seek forgiveness, that we would accept forgiveness. We would not hold it over our brothers and sisters. Lord, let us also understand that, that if we're not loving Christ, if that's not growing in us, then Lord, bring us and draw us to Calvary. Let us realize that if we're not in Jesus Christ, then that full weight of the law, that full wrath of yours forever is still upon us. Lord, let that truth, let it bother us. God, I ask that it would bother those who do not know you, that they would Lord, have such a, a tension with that or that they would seek you. I pray, God, for those and really for all of us that we cling to Christ that your Holy Spirit would just reveal in us the misery of sin, the brokenness of this world, God, that we would cling and cry out for Christ. And let us, Lord, enjoy love and grace, what we have in the gospel. Let us never neglect it, take it for granted, but keep it in front of us. Let us be that church, that in us, God, in your church, you would be glorified. The world would see our light shining bright and wonder, who who is that? I must know him. Lord, lead us that way, not for our benefit, God, but for your glory, for your kingdom. We thank you, Lord, for this truth. I pray that the evil one would not come and, and steal this truth away, but Lord, let our mind be fixed upon it. Let our desire be fixed there. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.